There we go. Hey, Keith. How are you? All right. Um, we're here at Kosla. You'll probably see me a little bit. Hello. We haven't done this before this way. Keith, um, Keith has always been great at, um, at making time. And so let's see, January 18th, two days before the inauguration. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. Um, so I, w I wanted to double click with you on a lot of topics. I think just, just as a brief context, uh, you were an early supporter of Ted Cruz. You were a classmate of Ted Cruz. I actually didn't didn't support Ted. I was oh, a, I was a classmate in law school of Ted. Okay. It's actually technically a supporter of Scott Walker, which shows you know okay. how well my predictions or yeah. endorsements how far <laughs> they go. Um, but no, I didn't endorse anybody after that. Got it. Okay, yeah, because I want to be clear about the biases too, because this is like a, this is a di difficult topic, right, for many people. So I think from my point of view. Um, my bias is that I would have wanted the Democrats to win, sure. but I completely understand uh, how this happened, and we'll we'll try as as best as we can to take kind of like an apolitical approach here and more analysis, sure, on, on kind of what happened. Um, so I, I think the number one thing to kick off with, and and you mentioned this in the conversation you had with Emily a little bit, G given the personality of the new commander in chief. Um, and it sort of like harkens back to a little bit of how Nixon was, I think, a little bit. And given the tenor of the attack from, from let's say, Silicon Valley slash tech and entrepreneurship, that includes investors, executives, founders, should people be on alert for some type of retribution or, or some type of retaliation? Well, I think most of the large companies post the election results have changed their tenor, changed their attitude, and are trying to dial back um, the ledge that they walked over. I think it's very difficult as a publicly traded company to take a, uh, a partisan position. And most mature industries don't, in fact. You know, for example, Wall Street gives lots of money to Democrats. Wall Street doesn't probably love the fact that Democrats tend to regulate Wall Street and Republicans tend to deregulate it, but they're very careful not to be get themselves in the middle of a bullseye. Yeah. And I think Silicon Valley being a kind of a new, new, newish, more power, more recent power wave hasn't realized the consequences of being wrong and being partisan. So at a time when we have Twitter, Facebook and everything is now semi-public. -public. Yeah. I mean, the contributions were public and have been public for a long time, yeah. but the attitude of employees, the vigor, you know, the, one of the VCs, you know, the fuck Trump, you know, homepage, you just can't do stuff like that. And not pay consequences when the other party particularly controls both sides, you know, mm -hmm. Congress, House, Senate, and the president. And so everybody's reacting from Jeff Bezos to Eric Schmidt. They're all trying to become friends. The best thing that, you know, I sort of borrowing this quote from somebody else, so it's not that original, but one of my friends said to me that in many ways, Peter Thiel saved technology mm. um, because had Peter not been a Trump supporter and had he, he not shown that there's at least some diversity of views in Silicon Valley about politics. I think the desire, the president being somewhat vindictive, you know, just from purely public statements yeah. and attitudes and the traditional, you know, views of the Republican Party, um, I think given the contribution level, given the expressed outrage, absent Peter's intervention, I think technology would have a real problem right now. And, and do you think, um, sort of P Peter is kind of like a bridge in that Well, way. he's become a bridge, as you saw, you know, sort of famously with this tech meeting, um, you know, that Recode's been covering substantially and, you know, vigorously. Um, but the reality is there's very few people in technology with access to what would soon to be the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, and most companies want that access. The larger the company, the more they want the access yeah. um, across multiple verticals, financial services, healthcare, obviously. And do you think that there's a difference between the Bezos, Eric Schmitz um, of the world with sort of large tech incumbent versus the startups and the and the sort of VCs that back them? I mean, well, I think startup, startups can clearly be more reckless. I mean, startups yeah. are more like pirates and, you know, the Apples and Googles are more like the Navy. Yeah. And so I think startups, nobody really cares, you know, for the most part, what the attitudes of the founders are and whether they endorse a particular candidate. Yeah. But as a publicly traded entity, you just can't be partisan and expect yeah. to be a publicly traded entity. You have shareholders. You know, I think Mark Zuckerberg actually at Facebook handled it very well uh, when there was contra alleged controversy around Peter. 
um, said, look, we want to be a company yeah. that has a product that is used by billions of people. Yeah. If we're going to be used by literally billions of people, we can't alienate half of the United States. That makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so I think he, you know, probably Facebook navigated a very complicated morass right. uh, quite well, actually. Yeah. Right. Now, now, sort of tangent to that, I've, I've read this narrative a lot. I personally disagree with it, but wanted to get your view, which is, um, the tech industry, either at large or, or the startup industry, since there's such a concentration of wealth here, will turn into kind of a boogeyman or, or a target as well. I, I tend to think of it as more still aspirational and people use the products and services on a daily basis. Um, but do you think that that narrative could uh, increase or grow during a new administration? It could, but I don't really believe in the narrative. I think the evidence is against the narrative. For example, when I travel, when I travel back to high school where I grew up, which is very far removed from technology, people really want to be in technology and are really interested in what I do and how to you know, find routes for actually nowadays their kids, which is more embarrassing, um, into technology, dating myself badly here. Um, and then, uh, secondarily, I've seen public studies of, you know, sort of, different industry reputations and tech is always the number one or two most highest, most highly regarded industry in the world. Yeah. Um, so it depends compared to what and tech's not perfect. Tech has lots of flaws, yeah. but when you compare human endeavors to other human endeavors, to other human endeavors, tech stacks up by any metric quite well. And do you think that there's any um, room or place or um, know, requirement isn't the right word, but obligation for entrepreneurs or companies to either be part of, the next wave coming up or, or building products and services to either amplify or combat policy that they don't like? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things we do here at Coastal Ventures is we filter all of our investments by impact. There are lots of things that can make money that we don't invest in or aren't interested in. And then when we find something that we think has potential high impact in society in a positive direction, we're more likely to invest. So it's absolutely the right and a positive thing for people to build companies that are, you know, sort of are the change they want to see in the world. I think it's also one one interesting thing about Trump winning is I think it will encourage more political behavior, more activity by non-professional politicians. So I think more Silicon Valley people may run for office, more technology entrepreneurs may run for office because mm -hmm. it's now established that it's at least possible for someone who hasn't spent his or her life in politics to be extremely successful. And I think that will encourage more people to run for different levels of office, whether it's the House, the Senate, governor, you know, or president. And I think that's a great thing to have more talented people from a more diverse set of backgrounds running for office than, you know, 40 years of politics. Right, right. <clears throat> and and just specifically to drill down on one one topic, what's your point of view on that fake news debate? So there, I think there's a there's a debate around Facebook and news and then just generally around filter bubbles. Yep. Um, and what could entrepreneurs do to 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 fix that if it, if it is a problem? I think one of the issues is that what I'm finding is we, we think of um, incumbent companies as you can disrupt them. I think the issue with the incumbent companies that are built on top of the Internet or mobile networks is the network effects kick in and they, they seem to get stronger. Um, and you have the founders either in control or close by. Um, so what can people do? I mean, clearly we have free will to pick and choose where we get our media from, but that's probably not the case of where people are going. So I'm somewhat skeptical about this fake news debate, I think for two reasons. One, I've seen no evidence that any voters in the United States are less informed than they were in any prior election in American history. I'd like to see some comparative data that shows that there's been some decline in knowledge about the world, knowledge about policies, knowledge about candidates, and there's none of that evidence. Number two, I think that this is mostly the last gap of the traditional media trying to reinsert themselves in a, as a gatekeeper. Basically, what the internet does classically across all industries is it eliminates gatekeepers. When you eliminate gatekeepers, get a wider array of opinions. Some of those opinions actually may thrive that the gatekeepers would have filtered. You know, Naval's posted quite elegantly yeah. about this. I'd read all of his startup, you know, sort of boy blogs about Absolutely. politics. They're incredible. Um, and so I think that's just one of the bigger drivers. The people claiming, complaining about fake news are all mass media types, not normal people. And then third is I think it's a hard problem. I think you can discriminate between hoaxes and what I'd call um, hyper-partisan behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so I think hoaxes are easier to filter, easier to eliminate. 
Although people still buy the National Enquirer. So there's demand. I mean, that's another point is throughout history, the National Enquirer has been publishing fake news hoaxes for decades. It's incredibly popular. You know, we've had wars based upon fake news intentionally. If you've taken your American history, you learn about the Spanish-American War and how the Hearst newspaper publication sort of manufactured the conflict. Um, So this is nothing new as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But I think there is a way to eliminate intentional hoaxes versus um, my interpretation of facts that leads me to a conclusion that may or may not be quote unquote true. I think that is a problem if technology companies, you know, want to stop that. Um, okay. So let's see. So, um, let's go into like a couple of, uh, quick topics. So do you expect, um, deregulation and do you expect it in a couple of industries or or literally re-looking at all of them and thinking about them? Well, so, so I'm a conservative. Um, I wish we would deregulate and re-look at regulations across all industries. I doubt that will happen. I think it will be concentrated in a couple verticals, um, mostly driven by you know a very senior leader in the government who wants to take on that agenda in that vertical. Um, I think it's generally good for startups. Startups thrive on chaos, unpredictability, and flux in, the, in a system. And so when you deregulate something, it creates a lot of uncertainty, which may be bad for society or difficult for society. Large incumbents may have challenges with that, but it's a great opportunity for a new company to take advantage of the Teutonic plates shifting. It it seems like the reason I was asking that question, too, is it seems like a lot of the brand of the incoming administration is to kind of say unconventional rules, unconventional rule breaking got got everyone here to where they are now. And so it's probably a license to look at everything with fresh eyes. I think there is a license to look at things with fresh eyes, and you can see some of the appointments the administration is making yeah. clearly reflect that. Some are a little bit more traditional. And any ones that you would mark as traditional versus like uh, a revisiting? Well, I think the you know for better or for worse, um, the Secretary of Education, the Secretary of it's not technically the Secretary, the Administrator of the EPA, yeah. um, are examples of an attempt energy possibly. Um, examples to rethink from first principles, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I, I suspect the SEC is a pretty traditional appointee. Um, uh, so it varies. I think in foreign policy, nobody really knows. I think there's conflict among several of the senior people that are going to be on the foreign policy team. Yeah. So how that plays out. That'll be a how, Netflix show. Yeah, and how the president arbitrates those disputes because they have very different views. I mean, I just was watching um, the new UN ambassador's testimony this morning, which was, in my opinion, perfect and awesome. But she disagrees with several other people, including the president, on several things. So it'll be an interesting you know, sort of administration to watch. I mean, I think it's healthy that he's hired, effectively, a diverse set of views. Um, like so, take Russia for example. Lots of people on his staff think Russia is evil. Putin's a war criminal. Other people think Russia is like a great ally and should be trusted and would be a great counterweight to China. Those are pretty different views, and I think it's a, a smart thing to have a divergent set of views in a cabinet. But someone's going to ultimately have to make a decision because the rubber does meet the road on policy at the policy level at some point. Hmm. Um, do you think, in in terms of this idea, just to get abstract for a moment, this this idea or license to rethink from first principles, let's say the EPA or any any other agency, what has enabled us to go from um, within a forty year period of of sort of building up and trust in institutions to like now what it seems like erosion and a license to question all of that. How did, how did that happen so quickly? I think social media has played a lot a role in that, particularly Twitter, actually, hmm. um, in allowing people who want to critique the establishment, giving them a platform and an opportunity to develop an audience and not have to run through people who have filters because the filters tend to take that stuff out. Um, filters tend to eliminate critiques of the establishment and those filters are gone. You, whether you use Twitter, whether you use Facebook, or whether you use Reddit, which are really the three you know, major choices, all of those allow people with new ideas, new data to publish and quotes them and distribute them and attract a following, and that changes the debate. Um, so I think you're gonna see this for better or for worse. I think in some areas it'll turn out really well that we've rethought policies from the first principle. Like for, for example, I'll give you two of my own you know, sort of pet peeves. I've never thought the one China policy makes any sense whatsoever, that we don't support Taiwan. I think it's embarrassing. I think it's immoral. And 
But the foreign policy establishment of the United States has made it impossible for 40 years to revisit that conversation. And then one day Trump woke up, made a phone call or returned a phone call and started tweeting about it. And that's changed 40 to 50 years of American foreign policy, which I think has been great for the better. Same thing, you know, Trump is proposing to move the uh, move the U.S. embassy in Israel. That's fundamentally changing American foreign policy since the mid-1980s, which was the position. And I think that's a good thing from my perspective. So I think there's a lot of going to be positive examples of rethinking things. And then, like I mentioned, you know, the president-elect is probably more like a bulldozer and maybe a bulldozer without refined GPS. And depends what you think of the general terrain. If you love the general terrain, he's going to bulldozer over some things people like. And if you don't think the general terrain's safe or secure or prosperous, then it's going to be great to have this bulldozer because when you bulldoze, you know, who knows what plants are going to emerge. Some of them might be awesome crops. So I think it's going to depend upon your sort of pre-existing views about the general status of the United States and general policies, whether you like Trump or not. And if this this wave continues, whether Trump is leading it or not over an eight-year period, the effects of that will be felt like over the rest of everyone's business lifetime who's watching this. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the consequences are sometimes hard to tell in the short term. Yeah. Things that look crazy or wrong in the short term turn out to be brilliant. And things that look smart sometimes look disastrous. I mean, classic example that everybody's familiar with is uh, the government gives us all this advice about what food to eat. It's basically been wrong for 30 or 40 years. And had you ignored the government's advice on food, you'd probably be better off than worse off. That's why we have all these obese Americans as people actually listen to the government. So I think like government policy can be terrible for society. And it may take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to see that. And sometimes government policy that's wrong at the time in the short term may look to be brilliant later. Right. And it, it will obviously affect people at different generations at different times. Right. So it can seem unfair in the beginning and then sort of, in some cases, get better or worse over time. Right. So, for example, healthcare is a pretty popular topic everybody has an opinion on. But fundamentally, whether you like Obamacare or not, there are sort of structural problems with America, with healthcare in the United States. We're certainly not ideal. There's certainly better things we could be investing in right. that would lead to better lifespans, better outcomes for lots of people. At some point, the American people and the American politicians are going to have to address some of the, the root causes. So... Whether getting rid of Obama, repealing Obamacare makes things worse in the short term is part of the question because obviously people care about their health care. But the question is what happens in two years, four years, six years, ten years if things got worse for two years but were fundamentally on a solid plane for the rest of my life, that might be better. So there's these short-term and long-term trade-offs and then you mm. layer that on a politics, which is there's voters who care more about different time dimensions. And the branding of what? policies in place. Right? Yeah, exactly. So there's multiple variables. In, in the immediate term, just to get micro for a second, what do you think the, the the Congress will do in terms of the desire to, you know, let's say, quote, repeal Obamacare, but then have something in place? What what is What will happen with that? Well, I think there's, they're kind of stuck in this crazy box, which is a function of procedural rules. I was kind of tweeting about a couple weeks ago. It's easy to repeal Obamacare because there's a way to do that with only 51 votes in the Senate. And there's not a way to create a new Obamacare a replacement with only 50 votes. You need probably 60. And so the structural desire to repeal and replace almost can't be done in one step, which creates this perversity of get, you have the only structural way, like procedural way to do this may be to have to do a repeal first. Mm -hmm. without being able to replace technically, but the uncertainty of that to people, to we'll the cause. market, yeah. may be too dramatic uh, for people to handle. So the Republicans may need to rethink how to do that and how to do something that could get 60 votes or somehow survive a filibuster in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complicated um, sort of challenge there because of the filibuster rule that's still, that's still possible. Okay, so let's move on to pr probably the most – emotionally contested issue, I would say, is around immigration. Um, and obviously the campaign, a lot of stuff was said that uh, was frankly crazy and like scared a lot of people. What what are we going to see now with, with sessions in place? Um, what should people expect? Will it be more along the lines of people wanting to follow rule of law and saying like everyone needs to be, you know, through a system? Or could it could it go over into another extreme? 
Well, I actually think what's going to happen, I have a counterintuitive sort of point of view on this, is yeah. I actually think that for skilled workers, H-1B, traditional yeah. um, immigrants, it's going to get easier, not harder. Okay. So, and then for unskilled workers, it's going to get harder, not easier. Which so, is what happens in a lot of other uh, advanced countries. Actually, right. There's a, there's also a logic to that. Yes. So, uh, President Obama, for his own reasons, own political reasons, maybe correctly, linked the two together. And that's why the term was called comprehensive immigration reform, mm. is his base, the Democrats in power, would not allow any liberalization of H-1B visas without linking it to unskilled labor, particularly for Mexico. So he insisted it's all or nothing. And that's why he got close to, he actually got close to getting all, but wound up with nothing because of that insistence on linking the two things. Republicans are going to delink those two things. They've always had the votes. Republicans in D.C. have always had the votes to liberalize H-1B visas, and there's a lot of Democrats who would support that. So I think it's possible that we see America becomes a shining city on a hill where if you're talented and you have degrees, technical degrees particularly, it's easier to get into the United States legally, but otherwise it's going to become more difficult. Even Trump in, in some comments made this point, which is, it is insane that we allow people to come here to get graduate degrees yeah. at Stanford down the street in CS and electrical engineering, and then we kick them out of the country. That makes no sense whatsoever. So going back to this theme, we should probably expect a percentage likelihood that the the INS is one of the places that's going to be rethought. I don't know because it, there's there's discretion and discretion. So some agencies have different latitudes set by the Congress mm -hmm. of – filling in the gaps. It's not clear to me that the INS has a lot of latitude um, versus like Department of Justice versus the president and versus the Congress. Like a lot of these caps are set by congressional action. So some agencies like the SEC famously has incredible discretion, like insider trading has never been defined by the Congress. Okay. So the SEC gets to try to define it subject to a lot of court review, mm. but they've, give, they've been giving like wide latitude to do what they want. Whereas the INS, I don't think has nearly as much latitude. So what you're saying is just to encapsulate that in, the, in in terms of potential financial regulation, the SEC may have more power vis-a-vis -vis Congress and the executive branch, but when it comes to immigration, it's actually flipped a little bit. I think it's been flipped. I mean, Obama's done a lot by executive action, but conservatives at least have been very critical of that. Yeah. So how that plays out in the Trump administration, whether conservatives and Republicans support the use of executive action, which they've been very critical of, they if they're not hypocritical, they really shouldn't be having the president, you know, set immigration policy directly. Got it. Okay, so let's move over to, oh boy, there's so much. <laughs> um, uh, here's a quick one. Uh, new administration's relationship with, let's say, the press at large. So traditional incumbent media and sort of the BuzzFeeds of the world and the next BuzzFeeds, the Cheddars of the world. Well, I mean, I think I don't have anything. I don't have that much to add to what you're seeing play out. It's very clear that the president understands that the media is not necessarily his friend. And I think the more disruptive you are as a president, the more adversarial the media is going to be, particularly if you're conservative. I mean, there's lots of studies that show how biased the people who go into mainstream media are. And they cover things disproportionately from a democratic liberal perspective. But it does appear very clearly that Trump's not going to take this, like sitting down. He's going to punch back. And, and I think this is – there's an old – one of the things that I think fueled the rise of Trump was actually more conservative people saying we want someone to punch back for us because nobody's supporting us. Nobody's defending us against attacks from the liberal media. The best articulation of this that I read in summer of 2015, not 16, was in the Atlantic of all places. Um, and I think Trump has like the personality to be a fighter and he's going to push back on the people that are critiquing him and that no one knows how that's going to play out. And he has nothing to lose now. Well, he does. I mean, as you become president, you have social capital, like you have political capital. Yeah. And as you expend political capital – it may get depleted. Now, if you expend it wisely, it may get an increase, just like social capital does. So it's not like he has some inherent, like, in unalienable, you know, ability to do this. It depends how he uses it, against who does he use it. 
Um, Lady Thatcher had a bit of this dynamic. I mean, she was obviously very different than Donald Trump, but in many ways, her relationship with a lot of the media in the UK was similar and her willingness to ignore the media or push back on the media was, you know, roughly comparable, at least the closest proxy I can think of in my lifetime among a major, you know, democratically elected leader. Hmm. Um, okay, so... One we kind of touched on earlier, foreign policy. So one of the things being rethought uh, from first principles is NATO. Yep. Um, and, and sort of other entanglements or obligations that the country has. Uh, what should we expect vis-a-vis NATO um, and, and in Europe? How, how could that play out? And what are the potential upsides of that? Um, and also potential risks. I do think you see a distance, a distancing of the U.S. from Europe, continental Europe. Yes. Um, it depends a little bit on the election. So France is going through a major election this year where it's possible that a true conservative Reagan-esque kind of Republican type person gets elected, which would radically shift French politics. So that might create a realignment. You know, Germany is going to go through an election that's going to be quite contentious. Yeah. Um, so I, I think Europe also seems to have just a lot of structural economic issues yes. um, that are sort of been sitting there for years. They've been simmering and the EU's masked some of this. So they have structural economic issues. Nobody in Europe basically grows. No yeah. one of those economies grow. You have 20% unemployment. Yeah, unemployment, particularly among people below the age of Acts, is like through the roof. And then you have this immigration and the associated you know, risk of terrorism and things like that mm-hmm. and insecurity. And then you have, in some parts of Europe, a vibrant anti-Semitism that has to be confronted as well. So you have all the fun, you know, serious fundamental problems. So it's not not an easy job for anybody. Unlocking growth in a heavily regulated, you know, generally European economies are heavily regulated, heavily taxed. Unlocking <clears throat> growth in that dynamic where people are unemployed and there's a lot of union power, at least in some of the markets, it's going to be very, very challenging. Right. And so I, I expect a distancing of the U.S. from Europe as they sort out the mess in the countries in Europe that sort out their messes in a U.S. favorable way, which France probably will, who knows what happens in Germany, that might lead to some shuffling of the deck. I, I think our relationship in the U.K. will probably be pretty strong. Um, and so hard to tell how this plays out. Does globalization continue to thrive in the same way? It has? No. I mean, I think one of the things that people got wrong is everybody assumed – this is a classic like Peter Tillian point, and I certainly wasn't – you know, aware of this either. I wasn't super prescient. Everybody for the last decade or so assumed that we were in this inexorable trend towards globalization. And it looks like that may be false. Like everybody just assumed the world is increasingly interdependent, increasingly globalized. There's just one arc of history and that's where we're going. All time free. For the last 15 years. Yeah. Like almost nobody would take the opposite view. It's only the last about two years that many people from academic commentators to conservative leaders to liberal leaders, like very left-wing leaders, have been taking that view. And it seems like there's a trend against globalization and interdependence. And that may be one of the bigger mistakes, you know, sort of of history, meaning like it may be wrong, but the misdiagnosis of what arc we were on, almost nobody got right. Um, I think Peter got it right. I think Peter's picked up on this a long time ago, but I don't, I don't, I don't know too many people that were arguing this more than six to nine months ago. And if that, if you're right in that, started to reverse or sort of unravel two years ago, what did the next five to ten years look like if that pace continues? I take a somewhat contrarian perspective. I think it depends upon old school factors like what's the natural resources of a particular economy. So countries that have a lot of self-resiliency and potential for self-resiliency may do fine. Countries that depend upon an intricate wave of networking and trade may suffer a bit. But generally, globalization has been good. I mean, like if you believe in comparative advantage and all these things you learn in econs or 101, globalization is good for everybody. I think that's mostly right. But... The um, moving towards a homogenous future is clearly going to be wrong. Yeah, I think I think when you combine the pace of globalization that it went on plus the 
the shift in value to knowledge work and work with certain types of machines, it left a lot of people behind, and those people vote. Those people do vote, and it's conflating several things. Like, so for example, one can be pretty pro globalization and still think China's cheating. Um, like, there, there, are, you can stitch together different views. Like, for example, I think we should probably be a little bit more hostile to China in some of the things China does. But I'm still generally as a person pretty globalist. Yeah. But I, I think China clearly is manipulating many markets and attempting to take advantage in power of power vacuums and we're doing nothing about it. it. Seems like both countries need each other in a very intimate way. Well they need us more than we need them, at least right now. Now the rate of growth suggests that in three, four, five, six years that's not going to be true. So I, I can make the case that long term you're right. But right now, if the U.S. stopped trading with China, their economy would collapse and their citizens would suffer and no impact. Nobody in the United States would notice. Like It's like sub 1% of U.S. GDP and it's a huge fraction of their GDP. Mm. Um, so, But if that's going to change because our rate of growth isn't particularly mm. good. In fact, it's the worst you know, since the 1920s. And yours is extremely impressive, although you never know what to do so with your stats. Are we, and are we potentially entering an area of like a tripolar world where you have U.S., Russia, China? I think Russia's China definitely for sure. Um, U.S. almost surely. Russia's a debatable proposition. So it's not clear that they're an economic superpower. They're historical power. They are a landmass power, and they're a population pretty much of power. But it's not clear that they can get in an economic competition with anybody like China or the United States and produce things of value at scale in a way that leads to long-term power. So you can make a case that Russia is playing the political game very well, but Putin's playing his chess pieces quite astutely, Yes. but they have no long-term future on, mean, on this level. And, and But that might also be a clue as to where he focuses. Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, as I said, he's playing chess pieces quite astutely, he doesn't have a lot of great chess pieces, but he's playing them better than anybody else at the moment. But like, I'm not sure that Russia can be a superpower other than by political manipulation. The underlying fundamental engine of that, that country just isn't on the same scale in any dimension as the United States or China. Are you concerned about – I mean one of the thoughts I had this morning waking up was just stitching together some, some of these threads and thinking like we, we might see some aggression – Essentially, that's, so aggression. what do, what, do, what do declining superpowers often do when their economic engine isn't capable of keeping up with you know sort of the true superpowers? More aggression is more of the classic moves. They also get more and more desperate, and they do things that are risk riskier. Yeah. So it could be a pretty precarious and dangerous situation. But I, I just don't think like over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you can make a case that Russia can keep up with the United States or China absent some artificial sort of sweeteners. Got it. Okay. Um, so sort of on that same topic, let's just talk about this this idea, and I think it leads back to tech, um, that there was interference with the U.S. election 2016. I know that there's been interference across many other elections historically, but this time it turned into more of a political issue. Um, this personally has been one of the things for me where I feel like I keep up pretty well with the news. I can't follow a piece of this. I'm, I'm totally lost. I'm waiting for the Wikipedia entry yeah. in two years. Um, but maybe walk us through what, what you've read and what you think has happened and what the implications are, one, for uh, the U.S. as a country in terms of its own cyber security defenses, and also what's, what tech incumbents and startups can do as an opportunity around that. Sure. So cybersecurity, I think, is a great area for technology innovation. And we have we have like three or four companies in our portfolio. The most prominent is called Silence in LA doing extremely well. So I think like more and more companies will invest more and more money in protecting themselves against emerging threats. We have a interesting innovative one called Pattern Pattern X that's like artificial intelligence based. So there's going to be a lot of innovation in this area. I mean it's just a good classic thing for VCs to invest in. It's a great thing for Silicon Valley to compete on. The actual election, I have um a somewhat um, nuanced view, I guess, which is, to me, this isn't anything new. Like, I think this is what political enemies do, is they attempt to influence outcomes in countries they're hostile to. The only difference was the Obama administration, for whatever set of reasons, would never admit that Russia and Putin were potential enemies. 
So they didn't treat Russia like a potential threat, like which Romney warned, Romney and others warned about, Rubio, Senator Rubio as well. And so they were surprised and shocked that a friend would do something like this. Whereas if they had been, if this had been in the middle of the Cold War, nobody would have been surprised or shocked if using propaganda or other means, the Soviet Union was attempting to influence uh, outcomes here or vice versa. I mean, we have Radio Free Europe broadcasting into the Soviet Union, you know, our Propaganda it turned out to be true propaganda, but propaganda. One thing I'll, I, I'm an Obama, you know, my bias is I'm an Obama fan. I I just can't understand how he didn't inform people because it seems like at a certain point, the a part of the job is to kind of just inform people of what what you're what you're hearing. Um, and might my, my calculus it might have been that he didn't he thought everyone thought Hillary would win. I think there's probably some truth to the oh Hillary's going to win kind of attitude. But I think it's more ideological in the sense of not really believing that Russia is an enemy. I mean, you saw his, you know, famous quip against Romney, which is the 80s called and we want our foreign policy back. Mm. And he just doesn't understand at all, like, that there's hostile enemies in the world to the United States. Mm. I mean, he keeps across every dimension repeating every mistake of the Jimmy Carter administration. Mm. I saw Senator McCain uh, said that exactly this morning, which is funny because I tweeted it a few months ago. I'm glad that um, you know he's, he's using my talking points. He's probably points. got you on the list. Yeah, yeah, he's got my talking <laughs> points down. Um, but I, I, Obama, for whatever he's done in American domestic policy and whatever you know, positive examples he's set, I think he set several that people will remember for a long time on foreign policy, unmitigated disaster, period, no, no exceptions. Yeah. Um, okay. Actually, one, one more double-click on cybersecurity and technology. Will, will we just see a ramp up of vertical security funds, people moving into security as a new area. Um, I don't know about vertical funds because I think, the, you know, as you know, yeah. you know, from raising funds and researching that stuff, it's hard to move on a dime. Yeah. Like it's hard to create a fund from scratch, move, right. you know, all of a sudden start yeah. being in business. I do think there'll be an emphasis on it. Like, so, I, you know, I've mentioned that one of my goals for this year is to start to help start, jumpstart a new company. One area, probably the single area I'm most interested in is, is in cybersecurity and I'm mm -hmm. kind of actively working on something in that area right mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. trying to put together, pull together some pieces. So I think you'll see a lot of, and I'm not a cybersecurity, historically yeah. cybersecurity person. I just yeah. think that there's a clear set of opportunities and a clear set of DNA and skills that should come combine together at the right time, the right place. And so I'll probably be spending a lot of time personally on that this year. But so I think you'll see a lot of that opportunistic mm -hmm. investing, opportunistic right. founding, uh, yeah, that would be my projection. Got it. Okay, so um, this this topic, next topic, is more of a, a longer term thing, but um, you know, it's pretty clear. I mean, I hate I hate using these buzzwords, but I have to. Um, the combination of robotics and automation that drives it are, are going to take a lot a lot of jobs away. I think this this month. Already, it's, we're not even. We're about halfway through. I got three pitches for really talented uh, roboticists trying to do something in agriculture, mm -hmm. all, all different modes, and you, you sure. can just see it coming. You have really smart people working on it. Part of the campaign that put the new administration in power was sort of on bringing jobs back. That was a marketing message. What's going to be the reality over the next five to ten years? Well, we're clearly going to see increasing, increasing use of robotics in agriculture and other fields. What's not obvious is what the sort of second order effects are with the dynamic system or static analysis, which just, I mean, you know, Mark Andreessen, when he's tweeting, would always tweet these graphs, which, is show, which show, at least historically, that every time there's been a massive industrial movement, it's created more jobs net than have been sacrificed. Now, that doesn't mean in a, in a compressed period of time, like in the first month or first year, but overall technology has empowered people yep. and created better and higher paying jobs through every you know sort of epic of history maybe this is different maybe it's not i think you can debate that but it's not as superficially obvious as tech's going to replace jobs hence there are no jobs hence everybody gets paid less like i think that's probably the wrong so you're narrative say, you're saying that the, there'll probably be a transition there'll probably be new jobs emerging that we don't know of yet um, and that in any sort of change, which has been kind of a theme in our conversation, there's going to be a lot of people who don't like it because of the inherent uncertainty in it. Yeah, uncertainty is an uh, interesting dynamic. So fundamentally, when you have uncertainty, you get the worst of all worlds, which is you have p people who, who fear the change because they're happy or satisfied where they are. And you, get, you don't yet see the benefits. 
So there's no support. There's few supporters, a lot of enemies. Whereas let's take, let's take a different one that's going to play out probably differently is self-driving cars. So self-driving cars are interesting because people can immediately grok the potential benefits. A lot of times when you see flux and in innovation, the, the, the pool of people that see the benefits can realize that the want it, the demand it, the crave it is pretty small. So you have all the old people voting against it and not enough new people. Self-driving cars, because 40,000 people die every year, because driving is a pain in the ass, because driving is you know, wasted time, all these reasons, it causes traffic, all the stuff. Fundamentally, you know, cars are expensive, whatever the case is, people don't like their cars and would love to have self-driving cars emerge, a lot of people. So there's people you know, on the positive side championing more than you usually see for a technical breakthrough. So I think self-driving cars almost surely do emerge. And I think because of the regulatory structure where it's possible to innovate in some states, but not all states, get evidence of the decrease in drunk driving, get evidence in the in decrease in death, then other states will have to keep up once the evidence is clear. So the argument people use there is if you extrapolate out to different sorts of uh, automobiles that you'll end up with trucking. Yep. And, you know, that turns into a political issue. I think it does because trucking is still a very large. I mean, there's there's this analysis that suggests that in like 30 some odd states, trucking is still like the largest profession, which seems very counterintuitive to people who live in Silicon Valley, I admit. Um, but number two, I think trucking is right for quick innovation, whereas there's usually two drivers. I think you will see is one driver, one machine, yeah. um, and that, you know, cuts the job. Now, that said, trucking is suffering a recruiting um, shortage at the tough, moment. Tough. I mean, one of the toughest jobs. It's a tough job for obvious reasons. And um, But if you look at the new people becoming truckers, it actually has slowed down significantly. So there is like a driver shortage um, mm. kind of bubbling up anyway. And that that may modulate sort of the effects of this transition is, mm. yes, there's a lot of truckers. Yes, some of them will potentially be exposed. But there's not a lot of new people that want to be truckers. And so the ability to ship things is dependent upon new truckers emerging, and they're not emerging. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay, let's move into some more more personal predictions. Um, let's see here. Okay, two-term president, bar, <laughs> barring, you know, barring any health issues, two-term president? Wow. Um, can, can the Democrats, I mean, this is a separate question, can the Democrats find someone to counter in this short period of time? Well, they have two. They have easy. They get two year pass. You don't really need to know until after two thousand eighteen, yeah. right? So yeah. that and that's a long time in politics, and the dynamics will be different, right? And you know, Trump will have to run on his record, right? To some extent, the dynamics of reelection are a little bit different. Is you will have to have at least some key accomplishments. You may have some yeah. negatives, but you have to have some key accomplishments. So that's going to be pretty important. Usually, the reelection is mostly a, a referendum on the current president, not the alternative candidate. Mm -hmm. That said, the Democrats have an age issue, um, which, you know, occasionally I'll tweet about with, you know, retweet usually, yeah. is all the leaders in that party are ancient. I mean, when I mean ancient, I mean, they're in their 70s or 80s. And it's not clear who the next generation is or could be. Right. Whereas at least on the Republican side, I mean, obviously, Trump, Trump is 74, or whatever he is, or 69 or 70, whatever he is. But most of the leaders in the congressional branch in the House and Senate are quite young, like 40s and early 50s. So there's a, like a bench. If, if you wind the clock back a year, I mean, I think the original sin of the Democrats, I mean, there, there are a few sins of the Democrats in terms of strategy, but not having a deep bench thought that they could unify very quickly. Problem was they unified around the wrong candidate in, in that sense, whereas the Republicans had a very deep bench where people thought it was going to get ripped apart. Yeah, well, I mean, 17 people ran for the Republican nomination. Many, you know, we make fun of, lots of people make fun of them now. Yeah. But on paper, the credentials of the 17 people running were quite impressive. I mean, yeah. you're talking about governors from Texas, from New York, from Illinois, you know, from every Michigan, from every, like, large state you can imagine. Yeah. Um, senators, I mean, the Republicans had an interesting field. Yeah. Most who were up and coming, meaning in their 40s and 50s, there were some like has-beens that were running on the Republican side, sure. but it was a pretty vibrant competition. And I, it, Trump, you know, to his credit, and people underestimate this, Trump has proved has managed to destroy the elites in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party at the same time. That's put aside whether you think it's good or bad. It's incredibly impressive 
for one person to literally destroy 17 people on the Republican side and then go over to the other party and win too. Like that, that's shocking, you know, disruption in some ways. Yeah. But I think the Democrats have a bench problem, but they have another two years to kind of figure that out. I mean, right now, their initial reaction to losing hasn't been incredibly invigorating, but I don't think they're on a clock yet until 2018. Um, in 2018, we'll then start a clock and we'll, we'll see what kind of person is the right antidote to Trump. But he's going to have to accomplish some things. Like otherwise, almost any Democrat can beat him if he if he accomplishes nothing. Hmm. Um, what about for you? What what seems the most promising to you in terms of the change that's going to come and the most troubling if you had to isolate one on each? The most promising is um, two things, uh, one or two things that I already sort of alluded to. One is that people, I, I feel friends around me who want to get more engaged in politics and they may actually even be willing to run for office. And I think that's very liberating that people don't no longer believe that unless they devote their entire life from the time they're 28 to 50 to politics that they can't run for office. And so I think that's an incredible development that Trump has fueled. The second thing is, I think, rethinking first principles, at least in some dimensions. There are, there's just a lot of sort of cor uh, corrosive accumulation of debt, you know, intellectual debt that that's sort of accumulated over the years in politics. And Trump, for better or for worse, sometimes not even knowing why, <laughs> is sort of unlocking like new thinking and new opportunities there. Mm -hmm. And some of that might turn out to be a very good thing. And what's most troubling to you? about the change that could come? Well, I think that it is um, a little reckless in some cases. Um, so for example, one thing, a little detail that not that many people know is generally when the president of the United States speaks on foreign policy, there's a separate approval process for his or her speeches um, that it goes through compared to a domestic policy speech. And the whole point of that is to make sure the president doesn't accidentally say the wrong thing. Um, so there's, a, in fact, a different speechwriter that usually works on it, but also there's a speechwriter with like classified with you know national security clearance, and then there's an approval process that's totally different mm -hmm. than when you give a domestic speech. So it's very easy to make a mistake, like the wrong word, the wrong word translated in the wrong way causes problems, and you know clearly uh, Trump is going to be tweeting. Um, and so I doubt those tweets are getting you know the same now, is level. That, is that convention or is that law? It's convention, yeah, but it's done for uh, you know, like not every convention's bad. I mean, Silicon yeah. Valley, right? You know, a lot of conventions are bad and dumb, oh, to and totally. that's what we get paid for doing. I mean, part of the reason I was asking for that clarification is I I asked a bunch of friends on Facebook. I was, uh, and again to be clear, I I was not voting for Trump, but I was trying to assess during the campaign um, what things in the campaign did, did his did his sort of campaign do that were illegal, and I couldn't find. Yeah, I don't know that. So all of it was like challenge convention, right? Yeah, he's, he's challenging convention, but not all conventions bad. I mean, right. we get paid in Silicon Valley for exposing convention, changing yep. convention. But just like it would be reckless to rebuild every part of a company from scratch in Silicon Valley. Like none of us would counsel our founders to rethink every part of building a company. I think rethinking everything and changing every convention and disregarding them all might also be dangerous too. But you want the upside. Even the upside is some of the recklessness leads to revolution and revolution can be powerful and, and you know empowering. Hmm. Um, what about this idea of people secretly supporting Trump? I think you know personally, one of the things that we saw on November 8th were it didn't really show up in the polling. And there was a social cost for people who may say, hey, I don't like what Trump was saying about X, but I like Y and Z and 1, 2, and 3. Sure. Um, will that continue to to be that way? There, I mean, there's been a long-term trend towards most pollsters being somewhat skewed, a little bit liberal across multiple countries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Brexit, the recent the, the election before that, the UK, the Israeli elections, there, there's a fair, there's a slight you know, skew there, it's pretty impactable. I think in this case, um, there's not in Silicon Valley, like this massive uh, support for Trump. Yeah. There may be, you know, instead of 1%, maybe there's 10%, but 
It's not 40 percent. Um, so I, I don't think there's like this secret army of Trump supporters hanging out in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, so, sort of a nominal issue compared to the things we've been talking about. But what about um, this idea around carried interest and what will happen? I, I haven't really followed that. but So the carried interest debate um, is fundamentally around whether the carry that VCs get, which is the the compensation that's a huge fraction of our job, is taxed as long-term capital gains yeah. or regular income. It's historically been taxed as long-term capital gains, and that's allegedly you know fueled the entire you know industry of venture capital. There has been both Trump and uh, and uh, Hillary Clinton ran on <laughs> excuse me a campaign that they would eliminate this alleged loophole it's not really a loophole because it's intentionally expressed in the law but this alleged uh loophole and obama also did and uh, you know yet obama did nothing about it um now the reason why it becomes problematic is it's also used by a lot of hedge funds the way it's currently drafted and i don't think venture capital and hedge funds are the same but so it's unclear whether there's going to be any any change to the law it's kind of a silly change because the system we have is working. If you just look at venture capital, even if you change this, the amount of money the federal government would raise is fairly small because there's just not that many venture capitalists. And it does create risk to the venture capital system. And most don't even get into carry. Well, yeah, that, that's true too, right? So unless you're a successful venture capital investor, you don't right. get a lot of carry or any. Yeah. And unless you're getting carry, it's obviously not taxed. Um, as, now, one potential impact is Trump is at least allegedly going to lower uh, personal income taxes. And so the income tax rates, if they get reduced and the capital gains rates stay the same, the spread between the two may get compressed, in which case the difference doesn't matter. So where all, yeah. where all of this policy matters is if there's a big difference between personal income tax rates and long-term capital gains treatment, that obviously creates incentives. And you know incentives are pretty important to people. But if you harmonize the two or the gap you know, becomes small, then the difference doesn't matter as much. So, for example, this isn't going to happen, but if Trump implemented a flat tax of 15%, it wouldn't matter what the capital gains rate was because it's going to be the same or below. But in any event, um, nobody is sure what's going to happen. I think most of Silicon Valley thinks that they can discriminate between hedge funds and venture. I can think of lots of ways to do it, some which have already been proven in law. So we went through this era from 2008 to 2012 where small business um, investments were exempted from federal capital gains treatment between 25 and 75% exclusion. Um, so there's a precedent for that when you invested in companies that were worth less than $50 million. So you know we could live as venture investors pretty easily if you just exempted investments below, let's say, $100 million of value. Sure. From long or qualified them for capital gains treatment, I think everybody could be happy. So, one market question: Do you expect, like many people, a Trump bump in terms of the economy? I mean, we're already seeing a little bit. Well, the economy is clear. The markets have clearly not collapsed, which many people predicted would happen mm -hmm. because of the vol implicit volatility and unpredictability. Usually, markets are afraid of that, and you haven't seen any of that. The I think the reason why, insofar as I can detect it, is they, the markets were baking in a lot of increased regulation and micromanagement of the economy by Democrats and Hillary. And as soon as that went away, you were discounting by the volatility and potential recklessness of the president. But this overhang of we're going to overregulate the United States and overtax the United States went away as well. So net net, the markets are kind of in or, or actually are pretty positive. Okay, so let's um, we're we're getting towards the end here. So like r real quick, um, what kind of role do you think Peter will have in the administration? And what about uh, I guess they had floated Bology as potential FDA. I don't know whether that'll happen, but um, what kind of role to, could these two individuals play? So Peter made you know one of the great asymmetric bets in history. Um, you know, if you think about this from a classic like venture startup perspective. Everybody thought he was crazy and wrong, and it turned out he was right. And that's going to, instead of accumulate to a lot of money, accumulate a lot of power. This is actually a metaphor for this, is what happened, um, you know, I occasionally get accused of being part of the PayPal mafia. And people sometimes forget the history of PayPal. 
all the people that worked at PayPal were complete misfits and had no establishment contacts to Silicon Valley whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yet, in about five years, from five years from 2002 to 2007, we went to become central casting in Silicon Valley and almost like accused of being the establishment. And what happened was in 2003, four and five, nobody thought that there was another wave of technology innovation coming because there's a nuclear winner in Silicon Valley and particularly on the consumer side. So all founders who needed money sort of gravitated to Peter and Reid Hoffman, to some extent Roloff, who joined Sequoia and derivative people like me. And it turns out there was another wave. And you know, some of our bets turned out to be pretty good. So we moved from outliers to central, you know, sort of central force in two to three years. Peter's bet on Trump has made him from an outlier in politics to a very central force in politics overnight. And now he has to decide how to use that and how to leverage that and you know see what happens. But it, it, it could have the same dynamic where Peter becomes a top one, two, three, four player in politics, just like he has do, been in do technology. Do you see him having ambitions on a elected official basis or on a more appointed position basis? I think he cares about influencing specific policies and the question will be, can he do that from afar or not? I think a lot of people have the desire to do that from afar for lots of great reasons. It's very, very difficult to do that. I think in practice, it doesn't work so well. When you become president of the United States, there's so many bubbles that get um, sort of created around you. Um, some of it's security bubbles, some of it's a political bubble where people are trying to crowd out other people. So it's really difficult to influence the president from afar. So I think at some point he may have to think about taking a more active role. Um, but for now, I suspect he'll try to influence from afar and by placing the right people in the right places. Okay, so just just to close up, some inside baseball, non-politics, Trump-related. Um, give us a quick update on Open Door. Yeah, so Open Door um, company is growing. You know, still rather fast. It's sometimes shocking that we wake up and there's like over 200 employees that work there. You know, we're going to need to move to like our third office or something crazy like that. Um, growing the team, we're recruiting very actively, finally added a CFO, which is nice um, for a company like ours. Um, so very, very happy. Um, it's got the opportunity to be you know, one of these incredible companies. We have a lot of work to do though. Problems only get harder, challenges get harder, and people aligning the team correctly, uh, figuring out what DNA you need to add, all that stuff gets more challenging as you have more product market fit, not less. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of work to do, lots of stress uh, you know, to confront, but um, very optimistic. Got it. Um, what about this idea that there'll be some kind of bailout for Silicon Valley from non-tech um, companies through M&A? It, I mean, you're definitely seeing some of that play out right now where I, I think there are, this, you know, the, the great talk about asymmetric of these observations is when Andreessen wrote software is going to eat the world. Yeah. You're seeing that now play out that every in- software is eating every industry. Um, and some of the incumbents are realizing that and saying, okay, well, how do we buy some software? Um, so I think in, in some of these incumbents have a lot of money, um, certainly on their balance sheet or market cap. And so they can leverage some of that, even in, even in a defensive, um, from a defensive perspective, let alone offensive. So I think that may be a savior, you know, for a lot of Silicon Valley companies, because I think 2017, personally, the first six months is going to be a disaster. I think you're going to see the Pebble story, the BP story, the Product Hunt story. There's there's play some, out so every many, week. There's so many more coming. Oh my God! I yeah. think there's going to be literally at least one week of a, like a high profile company yes. Yes. that absolutely crashes and burns yeah. into you know maybe a miracle outcome miracle, you know, sort of talent acquisition kind of style thing. But basically any high profile company that raised money over two years ago with a high burn rate that hasn't raised since is probably in deep trouble. And so I, I, I just think that this is going to be a very depressing year in many so, ways. So you, I, w- I want to double click on that. So you think there's going to be this kind of weekly drumbeat of like, oh, there's a company that I know or maybe was a customer of or yes. had friends at. Absolutely. That raised a lot of money. In 2013, 12, 13, 14 particularly. Right. And that um, those stories will sort of compound on each other. There's going to be uh, – there's got to be at least 50 of those companies out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've just seen the tip of the iceberg on this. Um, the so reason, if you're, if you're so, right on that though, that, that seems like it would take 
in terms of um, the energy and the ecosystem or the sort of uh, exuberance it could could last a year. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a tell to cities. You're also going to see Snapchat you know, yeah. thriving. Yeah. You're going to see, you know, as we talked about, Open Door growing. Uh, so I think there'll be the companies that have done very well over the last two, three years, Stripe. You know, there, there's clearly companies with massive momentum that are changing the world and going to continue to thrive, per your point about network effects and lock-in that will only get better. Yeah. But I think the companies that had a high burn rate that couldn't get their marginal costs structure to be correct and that raised capital at a high price are in for a very hard wall, a very high collision, a very high speed collision with a wall mm. this year and particularly the first six months. Mm. It takes like two or three years to kind of wash this stuff out of the system yeah. because generally you raise money that can last for two, three years, mm -hmm. but nobody wants to fund those companies. Yeah. Nobody's looking to fund a broken company at the moment. Yeah. People all want, insofar as they're paying a high price or spending a lot of dollars, they want a high upside, high growth, high potential company, not something something that might have missed its window. Yeah, and actually, one one question for for my selfish benefit on that, um, and I haven't been around that long, but it seemed like in the past when um, venture capitalists would would help bridge a connection from one of their portfolio companies to, let's say, a, a local technology company. Yep. Uh, and say, oh, well, if you're looking for a security solution, here you go. If we see more um, non-tech, let's say across the U.S. or even global companies that are not inherently technology companies, finance companies, how, and how how can investors add value in helping broker or, or sort of plant the idea for those types of sales? Yeah, I think it may be um, an interesting point of leverage for venture investors to forge relationships on a sustained basis with large Fortune 500 potential acquirers that are not technology-based because founders generally won't have that network, yeah. but we can justify it across a wide set of companies. And so put on, like for example, have what's called the customer day by some, yeah. you know, put on a, a, a slate of let's say 15, 20 of our portfolio companies have a significant executive presence from Target or name your favorite, you know, non-tech company come and meet the most interesting companies, see which ones they might want to partner with, invest in, or acquire. But it just seems like even, even with some of the best VC firms here, their networks necessarily don't expand to the large CPG or oil and gas. Right, so we may, may hire some people to help with that. Yeah. Um, in healthcare, like so for example, we do a lot of healthcare investing at Kosla, so we, I'd say 20, 25% of our portfolio mm -hmm. is related to health. So we've intentionally spending a lot of time forging relationships with senior leaders in traditional healthcare companies. Yeah. Um, so as you invest in a vertical or a domain, you may want to have you know, partners or compliments to your partners spend a lot of time yeah. forging those relationships. And what are the backgrounds or, or specs of those types of people that can bridge that gap or help understand it? Because they've got to understand what's happening here. Yep, uh, but then they have to have those personal relationships. So it is a tricky hire. It's a challenging hire because fundamentally, what we need is someone who understands the key strategies for those companies, like the top two or three things. Because they're not going to spend six hundred million dollars on one of our companies unless it aligns with the CEO's top two or three initiatives. Yeah. So someone who has that level of visibility and insight into what are the top challenges for this company versus that company, and then B understands technology and the landscape here well enough to be able to identify which companies might fit. So it, it is a challenging hire. There are some people occasionally who have you know, worked at a variety of tech companies and grew up in CPG or something like that or vice versa. So you can find it, but it's not a natural combination. Got it. Okay, so last question, and thank you so much, uh, Keith, for your time. Um, right now, what, what do you see as the most overhyped thing in tech startups and the most underhyped thing? So overhyped, I still think VR is mostly overhyped. I like AR a little bit more mm -hmm. um, in terms of its use cases and potential adoption. Um, underhyped. Just to, just to expand on that, do you think it's do you think VR is overhyped in terms of its timing to hit the market, or just in general as a consumer? I don't think it's a consumer behavior. platform. I think it's an okay. entertainment device. Yeah, I doubt it becomes a consumer platform. Whereas AR, I think, actually can become a consumer platform. The only question is, does it go, you know, is the AR here? Is it here? Is it something we've never thought and haven't thought about yet? Um, but that to me is like a no-brainer. 
Um, then underhyped, I'm not really sure. Uh, mostly because I don't tend to think that way, meaning like mm -hmm. I'm sort of like a founder-driven investor. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I don't have like a lot of macro hypotheses yeah. about the world. Yeah. I generally wait for a founder to walk in and teach me about the world. Yeah. And so I don't have like, oh, I would love to find, you know, X. Okay, so then let's, let's ask it that. Let's ask it. I'm, I'm that way too. Um, what... What are you seeing now? Any trends of founders coming in? Let's say that are under twenty-five, so they maybe they still haven't started. I, I feel like yeah. now we're gonna the people who are twenty-five and over they may have started one company, maybe two. Yep. And there's still some gas in the tank. Sure. What, what about people coming in under twenty-five? Are you seeing any sort of differences? Yeah, in terms they, of they're interested more interested in healthcare, which is interesting. So three or four years ago, when I started investing here. Um, I started investing in healthcare and not everybody was interested. Like when we were to recruit for our portfolio, um, there were some people who were interested, but like you had to talk through a lot of people. There'd be like, you know, objections. Uh, it's regulated, blah, 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 blah. Hasn't been any massive companies created for a long time, blah, blah, blah. All these excuses. Now among young founders, there's a lot of interest in healthcare innovation. So that's great. I think that's like, we'd like to endorse that. Clearly they ask about AI. I want to talk about AI and machine learning and all that stuff. That seems like just now going to be baked into everything. Yeah, that's my personal opinion is an independent AI-based company doesn't make a lot of sense. Not all my partners agree with me, but fundamentally, I, I think it's a use case. It's powering a specific use case or a specific vertical with AI where you have proprietary data and access to proprietary data. And you have a very specific value proposition that has an economic transformation that you're unlocking. Yes. So I don't believe in a general AI sort of startup barring extraordinary circumstances. And then we have we have invested in a few, so there are times where there's extraordinary circumstances. But if I was counseling a younger founder and they walk in and say, I want to do an AI startup and say, go find a real problem to solve and then show me how you're going to use proprietary data and AI to solve that problem in a way that's 10x better than what people do today, that's a company. Got it. All right, Keith. Thank you. Thank you.